when I use my zoom, I constantly have to set either whatever it is, 44 or 48 hertz or whatever the heck it is. And depending on which one I choose, I either sound like a deep-voiced baritone or a chipmunk. I feel like it's at the computer's whim whether the one that I pick works or not. You know what's crazy is for somebody who cares as much about technology as I do, I really have no answers for any like technical support things. It's just plug things in, unplug things, restart things, turn things on and off toggle switches like that's the only thing i know how to do and i feel like that's kind of the only thing that there is to do in a lot of situations well don't tell the world you know this is probably not good to be recording no no it's it's good it's good we're we're having a a cathartic thing where we're telling the world the truth about tech support or or maybe you're going to tell me that's completely wrong do you remember when there used to be whenever you would have an internet issue and you would have to call the like cable company and they would just tell you to unplug your router for like three minutes and then like plug it back in after that? Yep. And it always felt dumb. Like I could have done that on my own. <laughs> but at the same time, I feel like that is kind of tech support in a nutshell. I just try 10 things and one of them works. And hopefully I can remember which one actually worked for next time. Do you do tech support stuff for your church or no? Is that different? I am the IT director at the church, which basically means if it has a cable more than a power cord or Wi-Fi, it falls under my domain. And if it's broken, it's my responsibility to fix it. Right. So, I mean, do you have some sort of like arcane dark arts magic that you have in your back pocket that you use to like fix things? Or are you just flipping switches? I show up Uh like this. Okay, so this is this is kind of a running joke at church Uh just because... Like, whenever I show up, things tend to work. Ah, so you are magic, yes. I scare things. It's the IT magic, yeah. Yeah. I have that too. My wife will always talk about that. Her phone will be doing something weird, and then now she'll just, like, point the phone at me and be like, ah, see, (laughs) now it works fine again. Now that it saw your face or whatever, now it's working again. Now it's scrolling where the whole touchscreen had broken or something like that, but... (laughs) Yeah, I I think that that is it. So what we're saying to the the listening public right now is that IT is a weird combination of some intuitive magic that is felt between the piece of technology and the IT person and then a bunch of toggling of switches until the thing starts working again. I have two things that I do before I'll do anything else uh, to solve the problem. And number one is don't respond right away because the vast majority of problems solve themselves if you wait a minute and a half. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just just wait a minute and a half. 90 seconds. That's all I'm asking for. 90 seconds. And once that 90 seconds is up, I will restart it. And I would say probably close to 98, 99% of the problems I deal with, those two solutions will solve it like that is the bulk of what I do, is wait and hit the restart button. Mm -hmm. That's it. I feel like a lot of the problems that I have and a lot of problems people have just come from not even human error, but just introducing some new weird complexity into things. Like I can't tell you the amount of times that all the stuff that I had precariously managed to get working stopped working because I like updated Mac OS or something dumb like that. Right. That I shouldn't have done in the first place. Have I told you about my weird tech problem that is weirdly completely unsolvable? No. So I have I have two televisions in my home, one in my bedroom okay. and one in my living room, which do you have a TV in your bedroom? Uh, no, we have a single TV in the house. It is in our family room, also my office. It's right behind me right now. I'm assuming that that could become a whole other conversation. Very likely. We have uh, Apple TV in the living room. 
and then I bought a um, smart TV that had a Roku built into it for the bedroom. Okay. So it's like a, just a cheap TV that has the Roku built in, so everything's there. And for some reason, about three months ago, Hulu just totally stopped working on the Roku television. And I have done all of my weird toggling tricks. I deleted Hulu and reinstalled it. I reset some weird cache. I basically wiped the entire television and like wiped the Roku clean and started over and reinstalled it. I changed my router settings. I changed the way that it connected to my router. I've done all toggles that I can possibly think of. And when I open Hulu, and only Hulu, Netflix works great, all the other things work great. It sees all the shows, it logs me into my account, it does all of that stuff. And then as soon as I try to play a show, it just errors out, and there's nothing that can be done. Have you unplugged the TV and let it sit overnight? I don't know if I let it sit overnight, but not like a unplug and replug kind of thing. What's a good while? Because like, I'm, I'm thinking, like in this case... For the thing that I'm thinking about in my head, it would have to sit unplugged for about three hours. Really? Okay, maybe. Well, you know what? I'm going to try that today, and we'll, <laughs> we'll see what happens. But I took this to customer support, which I didn't even know Like Hulu had customer support. And it was one of those weird things where Hulu blamed Roku and Roku blamed Hulu. Oh, classic. And at the end, Hulu took the blame as much as possible. And I sat on the like chat support with them for like two and a half hours, no joke. And at the end of it, they just said, oh, sorry, like we've opened a ticket. And I said, cool, like, am I going to hear back from you? And they said, no. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's intense. <laughs> we opened a ticket, and that's it. Like, goodbye. And I was like, oh, okay. Huh. I guess I guess that's the end of that. They gave me, like, two months free of Hulu or something like that. But Wow. Do they, I mean, it's been months, and it still isn't working. And it, it just has become kind of comical that uh, this one random thing can't work. So, okay, I will, after this recording, go and unplug the TV and not let it be plugged in for a day. And then it will not be plugged back in until the next day, and we'll see if that fixes it, and I'll, I'll update you the next time that we record. These smart TVs, you know, they're, they're not great pieces of technology. I've, <laughs> it, it feels like I'm using a Windows computer in the sense that I feel like it gets bloated over time. Yep. Like, just clicking volume, it'll take like a 5 to 10 second delay sometimes to like turn the volume up. And I'm like, huh. that is not a good infrastructure there that this TV is built on top of. And that is indeed why it was very cheap when I bought it. Yeah. And of course, I could just plug a Apple TV into it or some other streaming stick and never have to worry about it again. But then I'd have another wire dangling down from my bedroom wall, and I just I don't want that. So we're going to stick with the, the TV with the non-functional Hulu for a while, I guess. <laughs> well, the reason I would say leave it unplugged for an extended amount of time is because it drains all of the battery capacitors and such in that if it sits for multiple hours. Is that why people would say, like, let the router be unplugged for three minutes yeah. or whatever that was? Okay, because that always felt like a random thing. They're wanting it to remove its power source and then set until those capacitors in there, because they hold a little bit of a charge, and it can still function even though it's unplugged for 30 seconds to 90 seconds sometimes. Those modems and routers can. So when you unplug it, you need to let it sit so that it has a chance to completely drain those and then fully shut off. But it, it takes a little bit for it after you unplug it. Same thing on the TV in this case. Because it's got the Roku bit, you're going to be trying to drain that, but it's a much bigger device, so the capacitors and such in them are quite large in comparison. 
So you're trying to let them drain out. That's that's the piece that I would be trying to do. It's weird how many computers we have in our house that we don't even think of as computers at this point, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, every TV of mine, the, the one that even has an Apple TV hooked up to it, it's a smart TV. I just don't use any of that functionality. I have, we, which we've talked about before, so many home kit things in my house. So my freaking door lock is a computer. <laughs> <laughs> which I know, I know how you feel about that. Yep. My light bulbs are computers. It's so crazy. Have you seen those like um, refrigerators that have screens built into them and all that kind of stuff? Yes. I totally yeah. don't get those. <laughs> I really don't. That one seems like a bridge too far, even for my light bulb AI home. I wonder with this kind of stuff, if this is one of those moments where things escalate and then de-escalate after we've gone this far. Just kind of like we see these simple phones coming back out. Are we going to see like a really beautiful and minimal and simple oven or like toaster oven and say, oh my God, I want that. All of your dumb toaster ovens have Android built into them. And what I really (laughs) want is this one that has one knob, you know, like, is that going to be a weird thing that we start like coveting? soon is just the removal of technology from all these things that have had it plastered all over it? I don't think so. I think we're eventually going to get to a point where that's normal. This is partially because I come from the agriculture background, and I know that when tractors were introduced, there was a number of folks that were a little bit leery about it because they thought it was going to tear up the ground too much. And well, that was their main goal was to tear up the ground like that was their purpose. Right. And there was a, a fairly large number of folks that were trying to show a resurgence in the the old horse and plow and you really don't hear about that anymore Mm. no one really does that unless they're doing it just for memory's sake i think eventually what happens is the new tech comes in there may be a number of folks that are uh, against it which you know we start touting paper over digital tools but eventually the digital stuff will probably win out uh, just in general but at the same time i think eventually those things become so commonplace that it's hard to get the old school stuff and there just becomes less and less of a market for it over time. So I I think there's probably going to be a, a continued increase in that sort of thing. I think there will probably always be a few that, that want the old school way, but what classifies as old school, I think will continue to progress. No one wants a wood-fired oven right now. Yeah. That's true. You know, that's that's just not a thing that people are interested in for some reason. You couldn't really buy it if you wanted to. Insurance wouldn't let you, most likely. (laughs) Yeah, that's absolutely true. I recently tried to buy a label maker because we have a a pretty small kitchen. There's really nowhere to like store stuff. Um, So we've been trying to become very intentional with it. And we bought some storage bins to have, you know, flour and almond flour and chia seeds and all of that kind of stuff. And of course, they needed a label maker because the difference between coconut flour and almond flour is very insignificant when they're in two <laughs> bins. This one looks like a white powder. This one looks like a white powder. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Neither of them taste like coconut or almond, so it's it's real tricky. In my head, you know, I envision when I don't know what you see when you see label maker, but I I see the thing that I've seen since I was a child, which is those embossed letters on that black label. And I went to try to buy that online, and I found that it was like extremely challenging because all that you can buy are these basically printers and. I, I hate printers badly. For all of my love of technology, I have the exact same amount of hatred for printers as a whole. So I really didn't want one of those in my house. And then I found what I was looking for and it was like buried on like page three of my Amazon search results. 
And as I was looking at it, I was finding that there's like a whole community of people that like care for and maintain the label makers from like the 1970s and 1980s because they were made of like pure metal where the one that I bought that embosses it is like made of cheap plastic and like breaks really easily. And people are paying like huge premiums to not have to deal with the crappy printer label maker and have the thing that used to be totally prevalent as far as label making went. I mean, it's, it was like an office staple. Like I, I remember growing up in, in the early 90s and seeing label makers all over my parents' workplaces, but I guess you can't find them anymore. So it is weird. Like as printer technology has gotten cheaper, printer technology has eaten label making technology. And I hate that. Like I, I really could not want a printer with a little ink cartridge or whatever less. I, I have no interest in having another one of those in my house. So it's it's weird how that kind of stuff goes, but I think you are right. Sometimes the the simple stuff just gets pushed out entirely, and the more complex stuff just becomes totally the norm. I have a thing against printers. <laughs> oh man, you and me both. <laughs> oh, they're they're painful. Yeah, and it, I think it's partially because everyone has their own like drivers and their own way of translating what you throw at them, and. It, I don't know. I've been through so many printers. If there's one thing in the IT world that I absolutely despise working with, it's printers. Those are the things I will avoid as much as I possibly can because they just don't like. There is no universal way of getting them to work. I know. Like it, it, it's not like they fit into any ecosystem really at all. I think that makes people that like technology even more mad because when printers don't work for people who don't care about technology, that's just the status quo. Nothing works the way they want it to work. So it's like whatever. None of it works anyway. Yeah, but when you know how to make a thing work and this printer won't work, it's like so infuriating. When we lived in Florida, my wife made me get a printer because she needed to print stuff out every once in a while. And the two of us had to go to some event that required like the printing out of a ticket. And I have this very vivid memory of me trying to turn this printer on that had been turned off for like two months because we printed so rarely and getting so frustrated because, you know, it had ink, it had power, it had connection, and it just would not print a single page of paper. And it took me like 45 minutes. And I'm, I'm a very like chill person. I don't get angry. I don't freak out. And my wife was like, what is wrong with you? I was like having a meltdown <laughs> trying to just print this piece of paper. And I was like, it just infuriates me. It makes me so mad. The happy ending of the story is when I moved here, I bought a brother printer, one of those really easy, just prints black and white, just works via, what is it called? Air print. Yep. It rarely gets used, but when it does, it prints the thing and I'm, I'm a-okay with that. So I've solved my personal printer dilemma, but good gosh, I hate them so much. <laughs> I, so the, the prospect of having a label maker printer freaked me out. I've done enough consulting and in-house visits for people who have printer issues to know that I have like five or six brands that just, just avoid them, avoid them. And yeah. like the only brand that I've ever had any success with is Brother. We've got one here at our house that's, uh, it's one of the toners. It's not the inkjet sort of thing. It's kind of that's kind of brother's deal. So they, they like that. I'm confident that the thing's gonna last forever. Yeah, exactly. So we picked one up that's a color version, just because with kids and what we end up printing, it just needs to be color. But I love that my wife can pull something up on her phone or her iPad, hit the print button, and go to the printer and pick it up. Like that has been one of the best things we've done in a long time. Now I wish I could say. Those things were cheap, but they're not like the cheapest printers you can get. But they're also not that expensive. 
They're just not. Yeah, they're not that bad. For the the amount of mental clarity it gives me. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The hours of my life that it has returned to me, I will happily buy the Brother printer. Definitely. I'm with you. On the same subject of things getting more complex and never going back, when you brought up the tractor stuff, that that makes me think of automated cars and Mm. these totally, completely autonomous cars becoming the norm. What do you think about that? Do you see that happening sooner than later, or how do you feel about it? I think it'll happen. I I do. But at the same time, it's... At some point, like here's the tricky part with it. At some point, you have to have a transition period. If every vehicle on the road was autonomous, they could all talk to each other and they could get away with no stoplights. They could get away with no stop signs. Like the whole rules of the road could change. But the problem right now is that when you're trying to introduce them, you've got this transition period of an autonomous car having to share the road with human drivers. And that transition's not going to be easy. We've seen that multiple times now with these things that fail. But it's like everything else in the tech world. The first iteration of something is always going to be terrible. Yeah, It's just the way it works. And you have to continually build off of it to get anything decent that comes out of that. And we're starting to crest over that to a point where I think we're starting to see some of these autonomous cars that could actually get away with it yeah. and start to become more uh, of a mass-produced quality. But I, I don't really know that I have a preference on whether or not this is something I would want to own right now, because part of me thinks these things are really cool. I love computers. I think this would be really interesting. And there's this other side of me that really just wants to get a big block Chevy 454 and put it in a Camaro and go have fun. Mm-hmm. Like there's <laughs> there's this other part of me that has this maybe the redneck version of me is is wanting these old school motors to stick around. Yeah. But I don't know that that's ever going to fully die uh, as long as there are people who know what it's like to to turn wrenches and work on things like that. Yeah. I I think the transition is going to be a a bit of a challenge. As you were saying about the tractors and stuff, I mean, there is sort of a point of no return, right? Where it wouldn't really make sense to go backwards. Isn't that true? I think so. And if you want to carry the tractor thing a bit further, they've been dealing with the equipment manufacturers are coming out with the concept of autonomous tractors and combines and the like. And even in my personal experience, they have had self-driving tractors and the equipment that can do that. That has been in the wild, used in real fields by real farmers for 20 years now. Like, that is not new. (laughs) In most farms, if you don't have that, you're kind of behind uh, in today's world. So that's not new technology. It's been around for a long time. And they're only just now starting to get to a point where they're comfortable enough with it to start making tractors without cabs. And that's not even in mass production yet. Mm. So it's got a little ways to go yet. It's funny to bring up like a a topical thing because we so rarely talk about some weird news thing. But I'm assuming you saw the piece in the news about the Uber car in Arizona killing a pedestrian. Yes. Yeah, that's unfortunate. But it's kind of like a bug in the system. Mm. It's a computer and it failed. I mean, that's essentially what happened. There's no way to quantify how many lives have been saved by automated cars because you can't count the number. So that's the problem, right? Is I would wager that automated cars are infinitely safer than human drivers. And the amount of people who are 
killed every day because of vehicles, I'm sure is a pretty overwhelming and staggering number. But you can't look and, you know, Tesla can't, Tesla or Uber can't say, look at all the lives we've saved because that's a, a mythical number that doesn't exist. There's, there's no figure there. They can only say what has happened that's been harmful. So it, it's a weird challenge when it comes to technology moving forward in that way because you have to just deal with the fact that these bugs will come up and the bugs will have huge consequences sometimes. And you can't really quantify the times where everything has worked perfectly and done so in a much better way than everything else. I don't remember the numbers specifically, but Elon Musk at one point mentioned the rates where there were accidents for human drivers versus those of the Tesla cars. Mm -hmm. Just to have numbers, like say human drivers, it was one accident for every 1,000. And with a Tesla, it was like one for every 20,000. Like those were the, the types of numbers he was sharing, which makes perfect sense. It means it's a lot safer. But at the same time, the there's also the flip side of it where if someone dies in a car accident and there was a human driver involved, it was one person who killed someone else. Like that's the way that that comes across. But when an autonomous car does the same thing, now it's an object that has killed a person. That's interesting. So what do you do when there's a thing that killed a human versus a human killing a human? Like that's a tough call to make. And it's weird to think of it this way. Is one better than the other? I don't know. Probably not. But it feels very different. Like just because it's a computer versus a human doesn't mean it's okay that that person was killed. But you have to think about it differently because you can't punish the car. You can punish the person if they were driving it. But how do you like what's the ramifications here? Who's responsible for the pedestrian that was killed? How do you prosecute that? Like, what do you do with it? Do you go after the company? Yeah. Do you go after the car? I don't know. It, it gets kind of confusing. Did you see that somebody tried to push this question to the limit a while ago? I'll find it and put it in the show notes, but I can explain the gist of it pretty well, which is that somebody created a little program that existed basically only to buy random things from the internet. Uh, and the, the program was allowed to buy things that were both legal and illegal. So it would basically just be given a certain amount of money to go online and just make a purchase. And some of those purchases were a picture frame or something. But then another one was like illegal drugs <laughs> that it purchased. <laughs> and the whole point of it was, well, now who is at fault here? Something just bought drugs. Is it me, the person who built the program? Or is it the program itself? Are you going to arrest the program? Like, how how does this work? Right. And that is a weird question that when I, when I saw that years ago, I don't know how long ago it was, but it was a while ago that that little weird art project existed. I thought that's a weird thing that I'm thankful we don't have to consider anytime soon. But this is a great case of where you do have to consider it, huh? Because it is technically the car's fault that that person was hit, not the driver's, I, I guess. It, it gets really confusing. Yeah, I don't know what to do with this one. Yeah. Because this is, a again, it's bug in the code. And do you prosecute someone over bugs in code? And I suppose it's probably similar to, you know, someone made a mistake when they were building a bridge and the bridge collapsed. It, it probably falls into that. Oh, yeah, that, that's another good example of that. Yes. Who gets the blame for that? That's a good point. Yeah. And so I would assume it has to follow something similar. But I, I don't know that the powers that control some of those discussions are thinking about it that way. I, I'm not privy to... Uh, the back office conversations around this sort of thing, obviously. 
But I think it is something that they need to consider because it, it feels like this isn't going to stop. There will continue to be more and more of these types of cars and these travel systems in place. And I, I would imagine we're going to have more and more of that in the future. But we really need to decide, you know, if there's something that goes wrong and someone is killed as a result, what do you do about it? As the family of someone who was killed in that, would you be okay with it just being saying, oh, well, it's a problem, we'll fix it? Like, would you be okay with that? Probably not. Yeah. But then again, there's not a whole lot you can do. To bring this back down to a more personal level, these questions are always really interesting to me because I always find myself being a really early adopter of technologies. And I have been since I was younger. We talked about that in our very first episode. I wanted a MacBook Pro to take notes on in class before that was the thing to do. Right. I'm sure now kids would hate taking notes without a computer or without a tablet or something. But you know, when I brought my MacBook into class, no one else had a MacBook in class. It was 30 pins and pencils and notebooks and one 17 inch MacBook, you know, that dominated my school desk. And when I had a, a Windows phone, I would do all kinds of weird stuff to add like different firmwares on it that like pushed the the technology. And I, I always want to do whatever it is that like pushes it to the edge. And now in my adulthood, I see myself wanting to do the same thing. If I could tomorrow have a Tesla with autopilot, I would and I would use it all the time. I'm recognizing that cutting edge desire within me is becoming more perilous i guess you know these things that at first it was just the difference between a notebook and a computer it, it my my livelihood now depends on it and a lot of the things that i do depend on that stuff and even what i was saying before sometimes my job is burdened by my weird cutting edge desires when i installed a beta of mac os on my work imac it like destroyed my ability to use a few programs that hadn't been caught up to the beta and I had to do all this work to like back up. Do you find yourself at one camp or the other? I mean, we've we've talked about this before with like software updates and that kind of thing. But do you find yourself drawn to I've heard you use the term new and shiny before, but new and shiny in the sense of doing something new, either technological or or otherwise? Or do you typically kind of let things be tested out for a while before you jump in? I have a tendency to float just slightly past the innovator early adopter spectrum. So once something has come out, I like to watch it for a little bit of time. But if possible, I like to get into it before the masses do. So there's this really fine line that I like to float in there. And I, I don't always hold to that. You know, things like the iPhone 10, I jumped on right away. But there are things like the Tesla cars that I would love to get into that if it were possible. I probably would just because I think that car is very interesting and I like the idea of a lot of the features that come with it. Uh, and I also have a thing for the the mindsets behind Tesla and uh, what used to be Solar City and such. So, you know, those are companies and such that I really resonate with and would love to get behind. But I think I'm with you in that there are a lot of cases where I would want to jump in right away. But I I tend to not just because I feel like it's a little bit risky to do that. The concept of installing a beta on my work iMac 
to me seems extremely silly, but <laughs> that's me. <laughs> it it had some feature that I really wanted. Come on, cut me cut me a break. <laughs> that I can't sure. remember at all at this point, and probably was completely inconsequential. But at the moment, it felt worth it. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so, things like that. I just I don't understand it. Like I get why people do it. I I won't ridicule you for doing that. Just in my world, I would never do that. But that's me. Now I would never do that too. I did learn my lesson. <laughs> See, you got to get burnt once before you make that decision. And I have been burnt doing that exact thing in the past, so maybe that's why I, <laughs> that's why I don't do it. I guess what I'm trying to get at is as we have these conversations and I think about that kind of stuff, I'm recognizing that these things were very early in my my life, like this this desire to be cutting edge or ahead of the curve. And when you're a kid, when you're ahead of the curve, it doesn't really matter because you, your ability to do stuff is so insignificant that there's not a whole lot that you can do. And, and, and even that has probably changed so much. I mean, if you can learn to code when you're 14, you can probably do a whole lot more than the weird cutting edge stuff that I was doing. I remember getting this weird uh, like pocket computer when I was a kid and learning how to do really rudimentary coding stuff on it. But that was basically just so I could like sideload apps onto it, as opposed to people now who are probably like making apps and selling them on the app store. So, you know, maybe, maybe even that isn't as true as it used to be. But at the same time, it just is, it's me recognizing that there are certain circumstances where being cutting edge or or trying to be ahead of the curve can burn you. But also, I, I feel like there's just so much delight in it. And there, there's got to be a reason that I like doing that kind of thing that is good and puts me in a different position. I don't think that I would be as technologically well off and like know what I'm doing if it wasn't for the fact that I have been burned a few times and had to learn how to reinstall things from scratch and all of that stuff. So I guess it's provided me with like a valuable skill set. And the question is whether or not I should continue developing that skill set or if I should maybe pull back a little bit at this time in my life, I guess. Do you like teaching people about it? I do. Because that's, that, that's an area that I... Like, I love doing that. Like, for example, so I've got the iPhone 10. Obviously, they're not as popular as like the 7 or the 8 just because of price. But as a result of me owning this, I have zero problems putting it in the hands of other people and just saying, here, play with it. Like, see what it's like. Like that, I have, I don't have a problem with that. And I think that whenever I get into something new and it's something that I know not a lot of people have access to it. I like to be able to help other people get their hands on it and see what it's like to to hold on to it, see how it operates, maybe get a feel for if they want to get one or not. Like those types of things I really, really enjoy. And I love showing people how things operate. And maybe that's why I'm good at the IT role stuff that I do, because I like to know what's going on in this latest and greatest world, but I don't always want to purchase them. Like, Take the Apple Watch, for example, that's just not a realm that I've ever gotten into. And having latest and greatest there makes zero sense for me. So I just don't do that. But if it does make sense for me, I like to stay up on it and I I like to be there. But I do love taking advantage of the fact that I'm in that world so that I can show other people what it's like. Because I think it's really cool to see people's reactions to it. And it's fun to see the people who are like, okay, yeah, I don't get it. And they hand it back after like 10 seconds, like, okay, whatever. But then you also run across other people that you have to kind of pry it back out of their hands because it's really cool to them too. So I I just really like that experience. And I don't know if that's something that you 
resonate with, but I don't know. It, it's kind of where I land. Yeah, no, that's totally true. I think I, I like doing that for people. The role that I always feel like I feel as far as IT goes is in just being the one that is willing to do as much as possible to like learn how to fix a thing. I've always felt sort of like an, a MacGyver in IT situations where I all hack together some weird live streaming solution out of the, the least amount of technology possible where other people would need a big budget to try to figure all that kind of stuff out. And I just enjoy that. A drum that I've been banging over and over again as I've gone into the freelance world is that same sort of teaching people how to do stuff on the more modern front as far as marketing goes, because you you don't need a traditional publishing vehicle that can give you a ton of money to like propel a project forward. You can do it on your own and you can use the the social networks and platforms that exist today to like do anything, which is really, really cool. The only way that you can learn how to do it in the first place is if you try a bunch and see what fails and see what works. So as I'm getting older, I'm just recognizing that there are areas in which I don't want to play that game anymore. Um, printers being an obvious example of that, although I don't know if I ever really wanted a new and shiny printer. I was never like very interested in that. There are situations, many more situations than existed in the past, where I just want what works. I'm not willing to sacrifice the does it work quality for the other stuff like I used to. I think there's a bit of a time element here, too. I used to, when new Mac operating systems came out, I would upgrade to them right away. I can't say I've ever been a beta person for that, but I used to upgrade immediately. And especially like with my phone, I have a tendency to wait for the point one releases to come out before I'll install the new and run with that instead. Partially, I think, because I don't take as much time to explore and play with things like that as I used to. And some of that might be a factor of having three kids. Uh, Some of it may be that I'm running my own business now and I just I'm trying to coordinate people and build projects versus learning my tools as much. Maybe there's a massive downside there coming and the, the other shoe's going to fall at some point. But that's that's kind of where I'm at is I don't really want to, like I don't want to jump into that sort of thing super early until it's somewhat stable. Like I'm okay with it being fairly new and them still working the quirks out. Obviously, since I'm on the iPhone 10, like that whole hardware system is obviously very new for Apple. So it's it's something that I know they're probably going to iron out some things in the next iteration, but I'm okay jumping in on that because it seems fairly stable to me and I'm okay with that. But if I had to jump in and then it was going to be a major problem, possibly, may not be, but it could be. I just don't feel like I have the time to troubleshoot it on my own time. And I I really just don't want to take that risk. So I feel like I'm putting myself in a, a difficult position if I jump in too soon. You have a a certain program that you do like coding in, right? Sublime Text. That is the text editor I use to write code, yes. Is that something that you've been using for a long while? Yes. I started using Sublime Text that would have been about five years ago. I don't really know a whole lot about the world of text editing programs like that, but I'm assuming that there are programs that come out that do different things that people would move from something like Sublime Text to. I would assume so. I can't tell you that that's true because I don't keep up with it. <laughs> yeah, so so I mean that that was my question is you're you you would never really be enticed to move away from something like that. No. 
No, not at all. That might be a developer <laughs> thing, though, because we we tend to get like our background colors and the fonts that we like to use, and then don't mess with it. Like, just leave it. Just make it always the same. I like stable, and if I am going to change what I'm using or how I come at it, I spend a fair amount of time making that decision. Like, for example, right now I'm I'm weighing the decision on whether or not to put in another an external monitor for my computer at home and that surprises some people to know that I have a 13 inch MacBook Pro and I use no external screens on it and haven't for at least two and a half years now right so that has been my primary and only screen that I use on that computer and I've been playing around with putting in a 27 inch monitor at my home office and I have been weighing this decision for about three months now and have not come to a conclusion on it yet. <laughs> so like, okay, this isn't a case of finances. This is just a case of, I don't know that I want this. Right. And I, I don't know if it'll actually help or not. So yeah, I'm I'm sometimes extremely slow to make those decisions. Do you think that there's a need for that kind of experimental nature and people that are trying to do creative or like freelance work? Do you think that's like a a value that helps people out? To uh, experiment with tools like that? Yeah, and like be willing to, you know, see a little explosion happen when you install a beta (laughs) and everything falls apart. Like, do you think that there's anything that's beneficial that comes out of that? I think if you work in the world of IT, it could be extremely beneficial. If you have the time Here's a good example. So there is a local tech shop. It's called TechMate. And they do computer hardware repairs. And they can do a fair number of software deals. Well, my wife's phone had a cracked screen, so I took it in. It's one of their primary things that they advertise is we'll replace your screen for you. It's like, gladly, here you go. And I can't help myself, so I ended up striking up a conversation with them. And, you know, they, they tend to install things and buy the new stuff just to see how it works and then they try to break it like now see that that would seem extremely fun to me like that would be a lot there would be a lot of enjoyment there <laughs> like okay let me install this see if i can break it yeah and then see how i can get away get back from it but the difference there is they are specifically trying to learn and they are specifically trying to find the the loopholes and the paths forward so that they can do it again and be profitable off of that. But for me personally, like, okay, well, yes, I may do this in the future. It's kind of fun to learn on that sort of thing. But I have a tendency to wait for the real situation to actually be in front of me. And I'll work through it at that time. Hopefully on someone else's computer, not mine. But that's... <laughs> <laughs> I I end up getting a fair amount of that learning just from working in IT and I don't have to do it on my own. But I can't say that it would be bad to learn those things because so much of like the magic voodoo thing we were talking about earlier, that I think has a lot to do with just understanding how the systems work. Like if I walk up to a computer and it seems like it's locked up, like I have all kinds of things in my head of why that could be. Maybe they opened too many programs. Maybe they just hit the restart button on it and didn't tell me when I walked up. Like, There's so many things that could cause that that my tendency is to wait, see what it's going to do because, you know, waiting solves a lot of problems. But, you know, I, I have a lot of things in my head that 
because I know how that system tends to operate, I have a, a pretty good feel for what it is I should be doing in order to solve it. In most cases, you can solve it very quickly just because you understand how it works. But if you're getting into a lot of the new tech and downloading betas and working with things at that level, you can't help but learn how the system operates. And that's going to serve you better in the future. So yeah, there's probably a lot of benefits to it. If you want to take the time for it, Drew. <laughs> I think that maybe as we have this conversation, I'm recognizing that I have a strong affinity for this kind of stuff in the same way that I have a strong affinity for input. Because, I mean, what is installing a beta on my own work computer than finding out and gaining a bunch of input about a new system that I didn't know about yesterday? Ah. I think that serves me well. I mean... I'm not upset about it because I find myself going down tangents that often lead into something good. And I, I find myself going down tangents often. Maybe there's something about that hands-on experience that I feel I really need. And also, in its value, I can help others gain that same sort of value. I, it, this is all just a, a long, meandering conversation about the reality that I think it's important to know this kind of stuff about you because if I know that I'm this kind of person, I need to know when not to be this kind of person when it's going to harm me, a.k.a. the iMac work computer data. <laughs> Don't do that. It was years ago. It was years ago. <laughs> it was devastating because I found out right before I had to live stream an event and all of the live streaming equipment no longer functioned with the computer. So that was a real big problem, but I figured it out, and the, the event got live streamed from another computer entirely. But in that same example, I'm the guy that knows about the live streaming equipment, not because I have some sort of weird background in it, but because I read a bunch of forums about how to live stream without a budget and found out what kind of DSLRs would allow you to live stream without having to worry about like burnout or battery errors. And I found out what little, you know, pieces of hardware you could connect to cheap software and like make things work. And I figured out how to use YouTube live streaming before anyone else was really doing that. So, I mean, it served me well and served me poorly in the same scenario. And as I grow, I hope that I can be served more than I get burnt by the things that make up my personality. <laughs> 